From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. It's easy to get lost in the latest true crime podcast. Or your favorite binge-worthy show. But what about your own story? That's the most important story of all. And therapy helps you write it. BetterHelp Therapy is 100% online and designed to be convenient and flexible enough to squeeze in between the next episode on your list. Get started today at BetterHelp.com slash pause for 10% off your first month. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our special guest is Nina Nesseth. She's a science communicator who has written the book The Science of Orphan Black and is a columnist for the site Nightmare on Film Street, where she writes about the science of horror movies. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Yay. Yay. We're so excited to have you. So I love that you wrote a book about the science of Orphan Black. I love that show. Me too. Enough to write a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) I would have died if you're like, I hate that show so much. (laughs) It's like, I can get into, I can get into it like so far, but. Well, so like, 
Can you never watch the show again after writing about it? I've watched, well, I've watched the whole show like a good like three or four times over. I haven't watched it through since I've published the book and that was in 2017. So maybe, okay. I, hope, I hope not because it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in writing about horror movies, like obviously you can write about some movies all over, like over and over again. But I feel like especially when I was like doing academic writing, I would write about a movie and be like, I never want to like watch that ever again. Even if I liked it, I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. There's just, there's too much. <laughs> yeah, I just... I'll have to, yeah, I, I'll have to wait and see. I said that about yeah. the X-Files and I've been coming back to the X-Files. So yeah. I've, the X-Files. <laughs> I'm not ready to like look into a future where I'm not still like connected to Orphan Black in some way. So uh, I'm just going to yes. imagine that it's like still an integral part of me. <laughs> wait, write a book about X-Files, please. <laughs> but like what? There are so many signs of, I do pop site and yeah. I, like, where it intersects with genre, right? And there are. Oh, so many really fun science books came out in the '90s for for the X Files. I guess they're all out of date yeah, now, so I can be like, the, like the updated. What did Mulder get right <laughs> in his <Exactly>. conspiracies? <laughs> and like, what did Scully get right? And I don't know. Anyway, did Orphan Black get science right a lot of the time? Or actually, yeah, they were an incredibly um, like as much as you can be within the constraints of television. Like, right. they pulled a lot from current science in terms of like biotechnologies and uh, genomics and that sort of piece. Mostly they within the show, they dealt with like the ethical side of things, which mm -hmm. led my, uh, my co-author and I sort of uh, kind of like peel back the layers on the science side. Cause my, my co-author was, uh, is a geneticist and oh, okay. I, I dealt with more of like the squishy human body parts, which like if you, <laughs> if you've read any of my, like my science of the scare posts on uh, nightmare on film street, I tend to like steer the conversation towards human anatomy or biology and that sort of piece. Cause that's really my like bread and butter. And the creators of the show, because it is the official book, what was really neat is that the creators of the show, sort of let us define canon a little bit through uh, like through the science side of things oh shit that's so fucking cool it's like an insane dream come true <laughs> yeah. yeah oh my god that's amazing so what came first science or horror that's really interesting <laughs> no it's an amazing question um <laughs> It's very chicken and egg, I guess. Because I know. A lot of I, was, I asked and I was like, wait, shit, this is like maybe more complicated than a question that I meant it to be. Yeah. I, well, because I think I think it would probably be like sci-fi to science to horror. Like I had I had to okay. start a little genre adjacent because I was like the biggest weenie as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word so much. <laughs> like Wee. I was the kid that you invited to your sleepover and everyone was like, let's watch Children of the Core. And I was like, I'm going to play Mario Kart alone in the basement. <laughs> I support that, though. I get it. I do have, um, before we leave Orphan Black, I do have a question. Which one is your favorite clone? Okay, so I have a really soft spot in my heart for Allison. A lot of people tend to peg me as a Cosima person because of the science and that sort of right. piece. But like our personalities just don't jibe at all. I'm really high strung. So I connect with Allison on that level, not the manslaughter level, but the like, <laughs> <laughs> they're just like barely keeping it together. I love Allison. She is my favorite of the characters, to be perfectly honest. Just her like this fake housewife, like exterior hiding, like this kind of more dark interior and she just is so fun i think she has some of the most funny lines the funniest lines but i need to watch orphan black you, never, <laughs> you oh, need to watch orphan black, uh, I need to watch orphan black. 
I it's really so want good. to. It's like one of those shows that like I really want to watch, but like unfortunately it has just been like a blind spot. You know what I mean? You like have those shows. Yeah. But now that we're talking about it, it's like now I have to watch it. It's so and good. You know what? And it's done now. So what I like recommending shows to people when they're like a complete package. So mm-hmm. I usually yes. pitch it like, well, it's five seasons. It's like about like, you know, 50 hours or so. You can plug that out in a weekend. You're done. And um it's such like a very sci- like a very very logical way of looking at it. Like, yeah. exactly. And then you just go on in this massive like orphan black bender on the weekend. And it'll be a total trip. I'm going to do that now. I mean, after you finish Shit's Creek, though. Yes, I know. I'm still. I have to finish Shit's Creek. So okay, Nina, you said that you like biology and the human anatomy is your your focus in the science world. So can you tell us about like your experience in science and how you got started in science and why you wanted to be a science communicator? Oh, sure. Uh, Well, I kind of tripped and fell into science communication. (laughs) Because I I started at, uh, when I started university, I wanted to be a a science teacher. Okay. And then I realized that I didn't really want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I I did like biomedicine, biomedical biology. And then I got to my last year of university and sat down with my my course advisor. And he was like, yeah, your grades are good. Do you want to go to medical school? And I was like, no. And he's like, <laughs> then why are you in this program? And then I had a crisis. <laughs> ah, yes. Um, and a friend of mine just mentioned a grad program about uh, science communication, and it was a one-year program and Ooh, uh, like super, yeah. super broad. I'm such a generalist, and it, it like kind of taught you skills across um, across like writing policy versus like doing mass media communications or social media communications or um, designing for museums and, and, and that sort of piece. Like it just really tackled like every form of science communication, except for science, science journalism. Um, (laughs) Fascinating. Well, because there are a lot of, there are a lot of science journalism programs that exist, but science communication is kind of a, it's kind of a, it it is a field of its own. And so it felt like a good stopgap, like a one-year grad program. And then from there, I moved into the science center world, and I've been designing science exhibits and school programs for school children and people who come into a science center up in uh, up in Sudbury, Ontario. Wait, that's so fucking cool! Oh, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. really, really neat, amazing. <laughs> well, I just think that goes to show you, like the the importance of being a science communicator because I used to work like in I work in social media and I used to work before like I worked with a lot of science journalists and like. I never truly appreciated like the art of science communication and like the like the absolute art of taking like very dense scientific concepts and making them understandable. Like it is such a cool and amazing thing to be able to do. And like hard. It's it's hard. Yeah, and it's super it's super weird trying to bend your brain about what sort of audiences you're you're like writing <laughs> yeah. for too because like who I would write like my content at uh, at the science center for is totally different than what I wrote like the science of orphan black for. Yeah. It, the weirdest reviews I got for that book uh like the only negative reviews I would get would be from like like science grad students who would who would just kind of like pick apart some of um, the bits and pieces that we oversimplified. And at one point, someone's like, I can't believe you didn't include an index in your book. Like what kind of like <laughs> oh. academic person doesn't include an index? I'm like, well, my main audience are people who want to learn about the science of Orphan Black so that they can more deeply engage with Orphan Black so that they can have better fan fiction. Like, so it's like <laughs> <laughs> I, that's so specific, but I'm obsessed. Like, so they can write better fan fiction. <laughs> Well, I mean, this just kind of goes to prove the point that Mary Beth said like a few episodes ago where graduate students are the worst. (laughs) 
Yes, we are. We are. T- I was one last year, and I, I was the worst. <laughs> well, so we were talking with uh, Bria Grant about that, right? And yes, grad students. <laughs> like, I I often feel like, I mean, and this is coming. This is not coming from science. Like, this is very different because like I was a humanities grad student, not a science grad student. So I'm not sure how different it is. But like humanities grad students always act like they have something to prove, and the way they prove it is by tearing down other people. Um, which is not not a great environment to be in. <laughs> no, it sounds super toxic. Yeah, it's super toxic, which is why I was like, academia is not for me. So <laughs> anyway, um, okay, so science, you did it. You're doing it. <laughs> doing it. <laughs> Jesus, that was very concise and very professional. Um, science, you're doing it. Science, you're doing it. it. So how did you how did you move from being a weenie to not a weenie with horror movies? I I think that I was like a closet horror fan, but didn't realize it yet because I wasn't being nurtured as a horror fan. Oh, interesting. I think that's kind of how it happened because neither of my parents like horror. Um, I. I think, uh, yes, you mentioned, uh, Terry, in the recent episode of my story about my mom, like, forbidding me from yeah. from watching The Exorcist. She, like, forbade anything that she found unrealistic. So I couldn't watch The X-Files when she was home. She forbade, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, like, all the... Like, it sounds like she's, like, rules. It's just she didn't want to see it. Um, that's more what it was. <laughs> it wasn't, like, it wasn't yeah. like, how dare you bring this into the house? Um, it's and more then, like, I just don't want to watch it. <laughs> And my dad would show me like some horror movies sometimes, but he kind of gauged them more on terms of um, on terms of this is a movie that it that is objectively good. Like, oh okay, him, yeah, he's like this is cinema, so we should watch it. Like that oh, sort of piece. Oh okay. So I didn't get exposed to a lot of horror that way. And at like birthday parties, like I said, I was alone with a bowl of chips and. Single-player Mario Kart. Single-player Mario Kart. (laughs) Doesn't sound Uh, terrible, but it does sound kind of lonely. (laughs) In 64 Mario Kart? Yes, in 64 Mario Kart. Very good. (laughs) But uh, I definitely, like, I have a lot of memories as a kid, just, like, um, scouring TV guides and reading descriptions of different different movies that were just playing on TV. I was, like, a little child insomniac. I was a very light sleeper, and when I stayed at my dad's house on weekends... Um, he had to sleep with the TV on, but I couldn't sleep. So I would like sneak down like little eight year old me climbing out of my bunk bed and sneaking into the living room and changing channels until I found something to watch, which I'm pretty sure is how I watched the movie that we're discussing today. Uh, <laughs> because I, I can't remember otherwise how I ended up watching it, except for maybe like late night television just sitting like six inches from the screen. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, stuff like going to the video store, I always, like, gravitated to the same, like, VHS covers. Like, I'd always pull the same same movies off the shelves. For some reason, super obsessed with just reading the backs of movies, especially the Poltergeist series. Oh, like, tell I would me just, I would, Yeah, I would just, like, pull those VHS tapes off the shelves all the time, just at our local, like, video store, and just, like, read the backs and be like, whoo, and then put it back on the shelf. I think I was drawn to that one, like, that series specifically because it had a kid featured on the cover, and I was also a kid. But... <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was just like those the, like those sorts of pieces were a big deal. And I loved like, uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Couldn't do Goosebumps, loved Are You Afraid of the Dark. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. I just couldn't do Goosebumps because of the dog in the beginning of the... Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> the eyes glow, you have to close your eyes, you can't look at it. I don't know. Okay. And then eventually yeah. I just became super into horror. <laughs> I just turned around one day and I was like, oh yeah, I love this. 
was there like a particular movie that made you feel that way or was it just like you just it wasn't really triggered by anything you don't think i i like i always loved silence of the lambs like from when i was a kid okay. watched it way too young didn't understand what was going on yeah that um, sounds about right yeah so i always i like I, I i my progression probably naturally went when i was around like 10 years old through like when CSI started getting big, I went into like the crime sort of okay. route and and then like crime movies, detective thrillers that were kind of like part of the horror cycle in the 90s. Uh, watched a lot of that and then kind of like segued into stuff that had more um, like monster elements and that sort of piece. Because cool. I just wasn't exposed to it. I had to look for it. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. It's like it, it is so interesting talking like to different people on the podcast because it's like a lot of the time it feels like there's a family member that was nurturing this love of horror. So it's oh, really, yeah. it just, it's cool to talk to people more often that like, I think Terry, you were similar. Like n- it wasn't necessarily nurtured by like a family member. It was more like found by yourself. Yeah. Which is cool. I think it's really, and that's really awesome. And like talks about, and like, you know, speaks to the, the power of the genre and like how important it is to people. Yeah, I agree. So do we want to talk about what we have been watching? Sure. Terry, what have you been watching? Um, so uh, one of the movies that I watched, and it's it's not it's not a fantastic movie, but it's interesting, was um, Disappearance at Clifton Hill. Have either oh, of you seen it? I have not seen it, but I have been seeing a lot about it. And then I know David Cronenberg is in it. <laughs> he is. Oh my god, he is the best part. He is literally introduced in a scuba diver gear coming out of Holy um, shit. the Niagara Falls. And he, uh, the first line, I think the one of the, it's either the first line or one of the first lines he says is, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe because he is a podcaster. Oh my God. (laughs) Ouch. Ouch. Too real. (laughs) Too real. At me. Come on, David. At me. David (laughs) Cronenberg fucking at me. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's about this, um, this woman who, when she was a kid and, her family was um her family lives in the hometown or it lives in Niagara Falls on in um in Canada and um when she's a kid she witnesses what looks like um a kidnapping and she doesn't say anything about it until later and then everyone just assumes cuz she would make up these fantastical stories that if she was just basically like telling a lie and then it cuts to her grown up and her mom has passed away. And so she is coming back to, um, to town to settle her things and her sister's there. And everyone is like owned by the local casino there. And her parents, her mom owned this, um, little kind of crappy, um, in, um, sort of like the inn that you would kind of see in like Schitt's Creek where it's like, you know, just kind of like a, a motel. Um, and it's being sold to this, casino company and she finds a picture and she starts to go on this like kind of noir journey of like discovering the seedy underbelly of this town that's all glitz and glamour on the front um and kind of figuring out what exactly she did see and i don't think it's necessarily as interesting as it could have been um okay with the uh the kind of like reveals i think the third act kind of falls apart but like 
um, when it when it's like doing the mystery part and kind of like it's it's relying on the film noir genre. There's some really interesting things and there's some fun characters. Like I really like I, David Cronenberg. Like I said, is the best part because he he operates his podcast out of a um a restaurant that <laughs> is a flying saucer <laughs> and is like alien themed. So like, is he me when I grow up? <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> or it's what I, let me correct that it's what i would like to be when i grow right. up right and like the the alien cafe is really funny because like the 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 uh the servers are like welcome aboard earthlings and like it's it's very thematic like a theme restaurant but like it just doesn't i don't know it just doesn't really do anything after like the mystery kind of becomes what it is okay but um it was entertaining and it has uh one of my one of my favorite characters from Schitt's Creek, the actor Noah Reed, who plays Patrick. I don't. You probably haven't gotten to him I yet. I haven't gotten to him yet. No. But he's so adorable, and I love him, and he's in this. Um, yeah, it's it's cool. it's fun. Okay. It's just not the greatest. And then I've been watching um, RuPaul's Drag Race. It started. Oh my gosh! Um, I forgot it started. Yeah. Wasn't there so a the Freddy old- Krueger look? There was a Freddy Krueger look. Okay. Uh, Crystal Method um, <laughs> was bringing some like fucking freddy krueger gender bent realness and i i was here for it um uh, well while we're recording this only the first episode is aired but um i the queens this year i feel are gonna be really good they they kind of split the the intro into into two parts so we've only seen the first seven queens oh did what they did that before didn't they they? did that like um it was i think season six maybe okay yes like it's it's been a while familiar or like sort of familiar at least yeah but like i i think the queen like my problem with the show over the last few seasons has been everyone is so focused on being meme worthy and like having catchphrases you know that like it just feels too produced yeah. Um, but like the queens this year so far are really interesting and I, they're, they're really bringing it. So there's some really good personalities. Um, cool. so I'm hopeful that the season's going to be good. Cool. But yeah, that's uh, all I've been watching. Cool. What about you, Mary Beth? So I saw The Invisible Man. Oh God. What, why did you think about that? I was waiting for you to say it. I was like, Terry, oh you saw The Invisible Man. Like, I know you saw it. Nina, have you seen The Invisible Man? I'm seeing it tomorrow. Okay. <sighs> so, good. so we will not spoil. That's okay. Obviously. It's okay. I can take it. Um, it's fucking phenomenal. Right. And I actually, Nina, I'll be curious to hear what you think about it from like a science perspective. Um, because it's about like, it's there. It's like very based in science. Like the acts of invisibility in this one is very based in science. Um, so I'm, I'll, I'll just be interested to see what you think about that. Um, so well, now I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, and I mean Elizabeth Moss is like you know everyone's favorite Scientologist, um, <laughs> right. but she's amazing. Like I mean, she just absolutely kills it in every role she's in. Like I just can't like imagine the kinds of like the emotional depths that she is like able to get into with her characters is. It's, it's like, it's like absolutely just like floors me. But this film in particular really got to me because of its painfully realistic representation of what it's like to be stalked by an ex-boyfriend or an ex, I guess an ex-partner. Um, because I, the whole thing is about her being like gas, like feeling she's being gaslit and being manipulated. And it is like painfully real. And like, it put me in a pretty weird headspace, but like in a, in a good way. And it sounds like bad. It sounds like it's a bad thing, but I was really impressed with how 
the director, Lee Wanell, was able to take a topic that is so intense and make us a horror movie that is both like sensitive but also scary as shit. That yeah. sounds really good. <laughs> like, I I was I was surprised at how um I mean I don't know what the right word is. Like t- tender is what comes to mind. How how like yeah. careful he was with like the story so it didn't feel exploitive or anything. Yes. But it was terrifying and re- he really did a great job of putting you in her headspace. Yeah, and so a lot of something there's two things that I was really impressed by. One was the use of silence. Um mm. they the, the score for the film is really good, but they're really minimal with it. And it's like the soundtrack has these big orchestral moments that are like really powerful and feel, you know, very typical of like a, a big budget film. But then it really leans into these moments of silence and stress and anxiety. And I, I just have really come to be very impressed with films that can embrace silence. Um, and really kind of lean into the idea of, like, how terrifying it is just to be in a house by yourself and, like, be, like, straining your ears to hear something. So that was really impressive. And then the other thing that I really um, I really was impressive was the camera work. And yes. the way that people have compared this a lot to Paranormal Activity 3, specifically the scene where the camera is on, I think, a fan, like, one of those oscillating fans. And so the camera will, like, move pan across the room and there's nothing there and then it'll pan back and there'll be something there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so the camera is like this really creepy like almost character in a way. It's not a voyeuristic it's not voyeuristic and it's not necessarily from the perspective of the invisible man, but it's creepy. It like it it increases the anxiety as it kind of moves around independently of any character, and you're looking for something in the background. You're looking for something to move, and it feels like you're watching a found footage movie. It does this amazing job of creating the feeling of watching found footage with it not being found footage. Yeah, and the thing that I really I really liked. Um, I'm glad you brought up the camera work. Is the way that when it's focusing on um, Elizabeth Moss Moss's character, it's like it feels it feels sort of like a voyeur almost like the way yeah. it's it's framed where there's there's one scene early on in the movie when like the camera is looking from a hallway through a doorway and onto her and it's like removed and it just it gives this kind of like this this like you said creepy vibe to it where you you just can like imagine that it's someone there watching her and I just, yeah, I I love this movie so much. It's it's insanely impressive. Um, I think Slade Bunnell's best work. I think it's yes, it's a, he's he's done such an amazing job. I think it. I saw it in a packed movie theater full of people who were like, I sat next to you like a pretty loud couple, and I was a little bit annoyed at first, but then like at certain moments they were dead quiet. Like this movie was so good to watch in a packed on with a packed audience. Like people were laughing and cheering and yelling and like it was just like one of the best like theater going experiences I've had in a long time where it's like everyone was really enjoying enjoying it. And I got frustrated at certain parts because I think I was a little bit more emotionally invested than a lot of people in the story because of my own like personal experience. And so parts of it, people were laughing and I was like, that's not fucking funny. But like, I mean, I can't, you know, can't fault them for that. But anyway, it was just like a really awesome communal theater going experience. So 
Yes, I cannot recommend that movie enough. It's like you're both selling this movie so hard. I was on the <laughs> fence for it because this is not what the trailer was delivering for me no. at all. You see that? And th- I, yeah. I'm usually like so anti-trailer because of this, because yeah. most trailers these days are cut very poorly, <laughs> mm-hmm. trying to sell something that the movie isn't. And now I'm actually really excited to see this. I was just kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, and then Jason Blum actually tweeted that they wanted to, he wanted to reveal like a big part in the trailer and Lee Whannell was like, do not do it. And they didn't. And like, I think it made the film all the better. I think, like you said, I think the trailer makes it look much more like exploitative and kind of like action-y than it is. Yes. Um, It's much more contemplative. It's much more like... Well, for a lot of it, it feels like a ghost story. Yeah, it feels like a ghost story. And it feels like it's... I think a lot of people were worried it was just going to be like very much just like about a woman thinking she's crazy. And there's a lot of that in there, but I think there's a really good balance between like making her seem crazy and like proving to you that she is not crazy. So I absolutely adore that movie. So I'm so glad, excited for you to watch it, Nina. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of in the... It's not really a similar vein, but maybe weirdly similar vein. I saw also saw Birds of Prey. Um, yes. Which is very different, like, tonally, but also it's, like, women. It's a lot of – it's a similar vein of, like, women, like, saying fuck you to, like, <laughs> abusive men. Um, it was so fucking good, guys. Isn't it, it good? Just, it is bonkers, colorful, nuts. Like, <laughs> um it was awesome. And, like, it came out a while ago, and I saw the theater. It was, like, mostly packed on, like, at, like 2 p.m. on a Sunday. That's oh, awesome. Wow. It was a lot of women, and we were all, like, having a great time and another really good theater-going experience. Um, so, yeah. I also, like, again, I don't – I'm not, like, a big, like, Harley Quinn, like, comic book person. And – but this movie, like, Margot Robbie is fucking Harley Quinn. And um, the whole film is just so much fun. And I want more superhero adjacent movies directed by women about women. The end. Yes, please. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yes. I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's like something everyone can get behind, right? Anyone that I care about. Just to jump back for a second, Mary Beth, because you mentioned something that just um, about audiences that you reminded me of something. Don't you find it so jarring? Like, even if you don't fault them, like when people are laughing during kind of these moments in horror movies, I, uh, it was back in, well, I don't know when, months ago, that I saw The Lodge. And there was someone in the theater who was just laughing uproariously. Like, it wasn't uncomfortable what? laughing. It was laughing during The Lodge. And it was just, like, the most jarring experience. And I've had some pretty, like, incredibly oh weird God. experiences in, in theaters. But that was, like, by far one of the weirdest. Second weirdest was the man who was, like, lighting a butane lighter and looking under people's seats during The Witch. But, like, that's... Well, that... that, Ooh, okay. Wow. That's a lot of things you just threw at us. (laughs) Yeah, no joke. It's it's weird that, that, okay, we're talking about best and worst movie-going experiences um, with these two movies because I saw um, both of them this weekend and the lodge which I'd, i had seen before because i'd gotten a screener for it was a terrible movie going experience for me because there was a, a group of of like i want to call them frat boys that were sitting ahead of us mm-hmm. and they there's a there's a scene at the end um I don't, i'm not gonna spoil it but you two will know what it is around a table and uh, yeah they started laughing I, <sighs> they I mean, were fucking laughing yeah that was at, basically my experience too and I'm like, what the, what the fuck? Well, that's what even weird fuck? if there's like a group of people. Like, I, 
I always want to be like, maybe they just have like, I have a couple friends who have this problem where they laugh. Like it's not when they're uncomfortable, they laugh, but they, it seems like they're laughing because I think it's funny. And it's like, it seems really fucked up, but it also feels like just like a lack of empathy because like the lodge is like one of the like worst movies I've ever watched. (laughs) I'm like, am I, by worst, I mean like just like in terms of subject matter and like emotional impact, like that movie like kicked my ass. Mm -hmm. Like I can't even imagine laughing at it. And I just like, that makes me want to just like sit them down and be like, I need you to explain to me why you were laughing. I don't, I cannot find any comedy. Like there's nothing about that movie that is comedic in my, in my brain. That's so bizarre. Yeah, it's just super wild. And I like, yeah, I just really don't know. So I was just wondering if anyone else had had that sort of experience. And Terry, it sounds like you did, too. Yeah. And then the experience I had with um, with Indivisible Man, there was this older couple that were sitting like three people down from us. And she was just anytime the, the Invisible Man would move something or something would move, she would just start laughing like, oh, that's funny. Oh, oh, that's great. Oh, oh. And I'm like, okay, this is getting annoying. It's like it sounds <laughs> yeah. like she was like trying to enjoy herself, but like in the in the way that was very frustrating. Mm-hmm. It, and she made me scream at one point because um <laughs> because like there you know the, you know the scene from the trailer where like she's escaping and he like is running towards the car door and yeah. then he breaks in when when she sees him running she literally went. God and scream so loud that I fucking jumped and went. Oh <laughs> my god! <laughs> yeah, uh, wait, was, that, yeah. Happened, that happened to me when I was watching it. I just remember that, like at one point, I can't even remember the point. Point, but it was like a really quiet part, and the guy sitting next to me was like, ah! and I jumped. I was like, "What the fuck is happening?" I like don't understand. So, like, I. I like watching things on big screens, but sometimes mm-hmm. I like not watching them with crowds. Well, and what's frustrating <laughs> for me is both of these were at um, the Alamo Draft House, where like people oh. are supposed to be quiet, and phones went off at one point. Like, I'm like, dude, what the fuck? Do you not know where you are? <laughs> it's like my life school is just to watch a movie at the Alamo Draft House. We don't have them here. It's usually like 99% of the time such a good experience. This just happened to be a, a twofer that was like, yeah, that's not... a, that sucks. And I was so angry that he was laughing at the end of the lodge because I'm like, I wanted to turn him in. But at that point, there's like two minutes left in the movie. Right. The end is so like soul shattering. Right. How do you laugh at that? What's wrong with you, sir? Right. Right. Theater, you get you get the emotionally rewarding um, viewing experiences when everyone's kind of in it with you. And then you get guy who laughs at the end of the lodge. Yeah. Yeah. Dichotomy of man. Duality of of man. man. Oh, yes. Yes. That's exactly right. (laughs) Uh, What about you, Nina? What have you been watching recently? I feel like I haven't watched anything that's, like, come out recently. I've been watching a lot of eh horror, uh, like, space horror stuff for some pieces I'm writing. (laughs) 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 Mostly because space horror is not my particular jam. Like, I like the slow, atmospheric ones, but... um, Gotcha. Once you watch like three in a row, you start to realize the formula and you're like, all right, all right, all right. (laughs) Yep. And this will happen now. Uh, So I've been doing a lot of that and also noticing that space horror also like touches on a lot of like scary stuff that is in my like nope zone. And well, like, and same with Little Shop of Horrors, like it's kind of like that area of nope in terms of um, like plot points, not so much themes, but plot Uh, points. Oh, okay. Like, I just watched Life, and even though the movie itself was, like, it it was fine, I had fun with it, but, like, it had, like, 
basically a similar plot to Little Shop of Horrors, where it's just, uh, you know, something that starts off small and cute and then isn't. (laughs) (laughs) You you know it's going to be something bad, but you cannot stop it from becoming something bad. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else I've watched recently. A little, like basically a little while ago, I, I, I did like a a double feature of Horse Girl and the Gods Inside My Ear. I want to say, just because I saw that Reddit post that was mentioning that Horse Girl could have been kind of a a, uh, like lifted directly from that other indie film. Uh, The Gods Inside My Ear. I want to say that's what it's called. Hold on, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. I've heard of Horse Girl. Yeah, Horse Girl because it just came out. Yeah. Uh, oh, the God inside my ear. Yeah. Yeah, the God inside my ear. In so 2017. It's, very, it's a like a, a very very similar kind of character and journey that this character goes through. And someone someone on Reddit had broken down kind of like different edits and scenes and like framing that like was very similar. And so I I decided not to just like you know take all of this as as the like holy grail of information about horse girl so mm. i i did a double feature to kind of make my own decision i can totally see where people are coming from on that piece i it's like if it has if it was lifted from this earlier movie content wise and like whatnot i would believe it if it came out to be true i'm it's not funny. i'm, I'm not condemning anyone but i would yeah. believe it if it were the, true <laughs> i'm looking at the letterbox reviews and people are like that reddit thread was wrong it's so funny <laughs> <laughs> Well, they are still like it's all. It's like it's not like they just took the same script and reshot it with like a higher profile of actors and a bigger budget. Like they are different films, but they just do follow very similar narrative arcs and very similar okay. characters and and those sorts of experiences. And watching them back to back, especially like it was it was really interesting to kind of compare them and then kind of decide which one I I liked better. Cool. I really <laughs> want to watch Horse Girl. It's really bizarre. Okay. Very very sad. Like it's definitely. Okay not the most uplifting film you could you could uh yeah go for but if you do like like slow character pieces which i'm all about like it was it was an interesting watch yes i like slow weird sad sounds like it sounds like horse horse girl is it for you (laughs) okay so we've talked about what we've been watching now let's talk about the movie you brought with you today nina what are we talking about I sort of spoiled it a little bit earlier, but I chose to talk about uh, the 1986 version of uh, Little Shop of Horrors. So I'm going to have have you need you to go back and say that again with a little lilt in your voice, because we're talking about a fucking musical. Okay. okay. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I'm just kidding. I chose to talk about the 1986 Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors. Bop, is that better? That is so much better. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Now, the most menacing musical comedy ever to paint the silver screen, Dream, Little Shop of Horrors. Where did you get such a weird flair? You get thrilled to the romance. Will you marry me? Witness the drama. You'll be a You have a talent for causing pain. I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. Feed me, Crawford! Feed me now! Savor the spectacle of the first plant in motion picture history yeah! ever to sing for its supper. Me now. I'm just a mean green mother from outer space and outer Starring Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Vincent Gardenia, with a special appearance by Steve Martin, James Belushi, John Candy, Comfy. and Phil Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> 
So for our listeners who are not familiar with Little Shop of Horrors, stop listening and watch it now. Um, but also... The film follows Seymour Krellborn, Rick Moranis, played by the adorable and dorky Rick Moranis, who is a nerdy orphan working at Mushnick's Flower Shop in Skid Row. He is secretly in love with Audrey, played by Ellen Green, a woman in an abusive relationship with a sadistic dentist, played by Steve Martin. One day, Seymour discovers a mysterious plant that he names Audrey, too. But Audrey, too, also has a taste for blood, and when it begins bringing fortune to the flower shop, Seymour is caught in a downward spiral as he realizes that the American dream requires a lot of blood. So before we get into why this scared you, I have a question for the two of you. When little Audrey, too, is first revealed, does it look like a penis to you? Because oh that God. is Siri. all I can think of is that it looks like the head of a penis. I never thought that. No, I'm sorry. I didn't think that at all. It's not usually where I like, I don't usually look for phallic imagery. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> I swear, though, it's it's pink. It looks it looks like the head of a penis. I'm sorry. I mean, I can see it now that I'm thinking about it. I guess. I couldn't stop thinking about it as more like vaginal, but again, oh, like look where, where our brains are. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just like, that, and that came more towards like the, like, like when its mouth kept opening. And they do those like shots inside it all the time. Yeah. Like, ah. yeah. Yeah. But, but I just, Terry, I can see that. Okay. What you mean, but but I'm, I'm putting I it, but putting it in chat. Click on this link. I'm telling oh, you. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, wait. No, that's... No, not now. Oh. There's, like, a little pink thing. <laughs> oh, it's cute. Oh, yeah, but you know, the way it's painted, it looks like a penis. It's, like, kind of veiny looking. Yeah, okay. it's, it's flesh-colored. Oh, <laughs> I'm telling you, it looks like a fucking penis. <laughs> All right. Well... Cool. <laughs> All right, guys. Okay. That's it for that's Sorry it. for Life. And that's it. Have a great night. <laughs> Bye. Great night. Okay. I am sorry, but like, that's all I, that I could think about when I was watching it this time. But um, anyway, so I'm sure. Fucking Terry. Oh, sorry. Your mind is better. Well, yeah. <laughs> got a dick on the brain. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I'm sorry. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm blushing. Uh, so... How old were you when you saw this movie, Nina? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. Amazing. Uh, yeah. How old were you when you saw this and what, what about it terrified you? So I'm not quite sure how old I was. I was probably definitely under eight and I'm assuming it was a late night viewing like I was sort of describing earlier. Mm -hmm. Just kind of like hunched down at 1 a.m. with a remote uh, but I'm assuming it was like under eight because I definitely watched it around the same time that I watched Gremlins, which like kind of really cemented ah. again that theme of things that are cute and then consume something and then aren't cute anymore. <laughs> right. Um, a very specific that's, fear. That is. A very specific specific fear that's just followed me. And plus, like 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 growing up in the '90s too, it's like I feel like every cartoon that had like some sort of element of fantasy to it had a single episode where like the main cast would come across something that was like a hamster or a weird creature and it was so cute oh my goodness and then suddenly like that exact thing happened again because everyone just wanted to like just crib this plot apparently and terrify me for my entire life i can't think of any shows where they did that except for oh, i know it was in a lot of 
Isn't there like a Goosebumps book about a little hamster that like... Oh, Monster Blood yeah. 2. Monster, uh, Monster Blood 2? I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> That's very... Sp- I read the books. You <laughs> haven't watched you, the show. You, have, you have it like ready to go. You're like, Monster Blood 2. I know this. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Uh, and definitely like there's a... there's a. I don't know if you would have seen it because it was like a Canadian like kids show called Space Cases. And there was definitely an episode of, of Space Cases that had that happen. It had like a really young like Michelle Trashenberg in it. Oh, wow. Whoa. Yeah. But yeah, it was. I, I what, what I found scary about it probably wasn't that piece. I think that's just what like my my like memory decided to like consolidate and store for the rest of my life. But I think it's just that like when you're that young, if there's something that just like is so big and intimidating that it fills the entire screen of your television to the point where like mm. uh, like when I was watching it uh, just last night, I was just like I got wrapped up in thinking about like how hard and how long it must have taken to to frame all these shots and to like to fit this giant puppet in with the actors and kind of get everything kind of kind of set up in a way that you know you could have something other than a giant puppet head in the shot and so i guess because it just like sort of filled everything in view it just it it was just really intimidating for a kid yeah i didn't even think about that and there and there's something to be said like i've done a bit of research into this for for other projects that i've uh, that i've worked on where there's a lot of learning theory that exists about kind of like fear and how it develops depending on which age you are and what learning stage you're in when you experience that fear. So it's like when you're younger, you tend to be more likely to to form a fear around something that isn't necessarily scary, but either was like really big and intimidating or really loud, um, which is why they were able to do those like awful experiments back in like the 1930s with like the little Albert experiments. I don't know if you've ever heard of those where they basically um, trained a child to be afraid of uh, like a lot of different white fluffy things like a bunny rabbit or a Santa mask and, and stuff like that just by uh, making associations between that white fluffy thing and a fear response. Um, so it's like, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's like a monster that, that, that becomes scary. Although in the case of, Little Shop of Horrors is definitely a monster. And then when <laughs> yeah. you get older, and then when you get older, you're able to like conceptualize fears better. So then once you're like 10 or 12 or older, you're more likely to be afraid of something more abstract, like war or <laughs> um, like, like COVID-19. Like, oh God. like, is my family going to get infected? Like you're more likely as someone who's like a fifth or sixth grader to be afraid of that than if you're like six. Right. It kind of, Piggybacking off that, I, I when I was when I was watching this this movie this time, um, I was trying to remember how I felt watching this because when I was a kid, because this was one of my favorite movies growing up, and I watched really? it. I watched it a whole lot. But when it gets to the scene of the dentist, uh oh, oh, give me a hand, would you? <laughs> no, I guess you wouldn't, would you? <laughs> You see, Seymour, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't fix And he is wearing that pig mat. Like, it looks like a pig. This, this like, machine that's, like, feeding him nitrous oxide, right? And mm-hmm. the way it's he's wearing it, it, it made him kind of look like a pig in my head, in my childhood head. And 
when he dies and his eyes are like open, you can tell he's smiling, but you can't see his mouth because it's again covered by this mass that's that was feeding him the nitrous oxide. That image like has been stuck in my head this entire time. And I, I was watching, I was trying to think of when I watched this and I probably watched it the same time I was watching like f- fucking alien and nightmare on Elm street. But for some reason that scene and then the, the shadow of, of um, Seymour chopping him up at like just a scene later, like stuck with me. Huh? It's so weird. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. For me, it was just a big old scary puppet, but like you have fear landing on some actually really terrifying things. <laughs> See, like I'm... I still get uncomfortable looking at Audrey too. Oh, I love, I love Audrey too. I, I borrowed the DVD from a friend and I had to ask her for it. And I was like, you have this DVD, right? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, can I borrow it? She's like, you're afraid of it. <laughs> it's, like, it is, it's known. It is known. It is known. Uh, and what about you, Mary Beth? When, um, <laughs> I gotta ask because your DM yeah, made me I laugh. I DM'd you about this, which was hilarious. So I realized yesterday that throughout my childhood, <laughs> I conflated Little Shop of Horrors and the Rocky Horror Picture Show <laughs> together. I think because they were like horror, they had obviously had horror in the name, then they were like, horror musicals and i don't know why it, it's so weird but like i was watching it i'm like i think i just thought they were the same fucking movie can you imagine that kind of movie you i mean have, i would that'd I would be such a chaotic movie i would adore it um you have frankenfurter how do you do i and yeah. <laughs> it's like dancing with audrey too um, uh, i'm on board for this uh crossover Right. And so, and then it's like, I can never, I was also messaging Terry that like, I can't remember watching this movie, but I remember it like the movie itself and the the songs yeah, and a lot of the imagery, but I don't remember ever watching it. And I know that I saw the musical performed when I was younger. Um, my, I am from Annapolis, Maryland. So I lived near the Naval Academy and my grandparent, my grandpa was in the Navy. So they had like season tickets to a lot of like the musicals put on by the students, the midshipmen, midshipmen. So we saw a production of Little Shop of Horrors that had a full fucking Audrey puppet. There was a man in a giant plant costume, which was so cool. And like, I saw that. And so I feel like I'm very familiar with Little Shop of Horrors, but like with no real like uh, like ability to pinpoint when I saw the movie, if that makes any sense. I feel that like that's a lot of my experience of it too. Is like I've definitely seen not I've seen like my sister in law's high school performance of it, so nothing of the caliber that you saw. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah, I can't remember like the experience of watching the movie, but I definitely just like have it just ingrained in me like everything yeah. nothing nothing was surprising when i was watching yeah, it yeah exactly and like i also have like a very specific memory of like always of of steve martin as the dentist um and him like talking about loving pain mm-hmm. um that's <laughs> No, <laughs> no i just i was immediately thinking of bill murray's pain, I know. Pain oh, character yeah. also didn't remember, like always like like um Bill Murray was in it. Oh, shit. John Candy. Thank you. John uh, Candy. Like, all of these, like, Christopher Davis. Guest. Yes. Like, I was so surprised of like, those just, like, random guest, like, guest characters. Before we get away from the, 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 the theatrical, um, I have, <laughs> I have a little, not necessarily confession, but kind of, um, I was that bitch. Um, there was a kid that was 
involved with some dance studio that was going to put this on and he wanted me to play uh mr mushnick in it i was like 14 at the time and i was like how are you going to put this on it's a it's a plant do you have a the plant puppet he's like oh no we're gonna have someone dressed up in a costume like that's stupid i'm not doing this (laughs) you missed an opportunity (laughs) yeah it was that was me as as, as like a 13 or 14 year old i can't remember which but yep that that's well and so there was a 1960 version of this where Jack Nicholson played the dentist, wasn't it? Yeah, that's actually what this is. Um, this was originally based off of, yeah, yeah. the Roger Corman uh, yeah. movie. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that, um, which is really cool to like to kind of see the history because it wasn't a musical, was it? No, no. It um it was this movie, and then um, Alan Menken, who um, did a lot of Disney stuff, like. Yeah. Uh, a Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. He did this off off Broadway thing that then became off Broadway, then became Broadway in then this movie became yeah. yeah. And Frank Oz directed this, and who did The Dark Crystal, which we right. talked about. So like Frank Oz loves puppets. Mm-hmm. Though I will say this is very different from Dark Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was like in watching the opening credits, I was like Frank Oz, Alan Menken, what the hell? Like right, good God. Um, it's like a recipe for a Disney movie, but then, or not Disney, I guess more like a Jim Henson company movie. Yeah, well, and it definitely feels like a set, like, you know, it feels like a stage set, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, everything feels fake. Like, especially when they're outside on the street, everything- fake, Fake with intention. Exactly. Like, 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 it feels like it's trying to be a movie that takes place on a Broadway stage- Sort of. And that was interesting, like that whole aesthetic of the film um, and how it did feel like it was on like a Broadway stage rather than trying to make it feel real. Because the whole, the whole thing is so fucking ridiculous. I mean, like it's a musical, first off, and there's an alien plant. So I feel like they lean into the camp. Like this is a campy movie to me. Like this is just camp. And I feel like this film really leans into that aspect like it knows what it is kind of going with that i I think i I definitely think the artifice behind it is is definitely purposeful especially um where i noticed it this time was in the song when um audrey is singing about summer green and she's like imagining this like the track toes that we share somewhere that's green tract house that's like looking the exact same as every other house and this is like her american dream of like having this house with two kids a boy and a girl and a dog and he's mowing the yard and she's dressed to the nines while she's baking a cake and like doing housework and participating in like tupperware parties and it's all it's all fake like it looks like cardboard up on on the screen and i think it kind of plays into the idea that this american dream that they're all hoping for is is fake (laughs) she even like hugs a toaster right and it's like it's like her biggest dream is to be able to like hug a toaster and feed tv dinners to her family and to be like like, run her hand along a plastic covered like couch like (laughs) like her entire like her her entire does like her her fantasy is based on material things it's not just being married it's like 
the house, the toaster, the plastic covered furniture, the 12 inch screen TV, <laughs> the giant 12 the inch giant screen. screen TV. <laughs> and it, like, like you said, this, that song really kind of hits home, like the materialism mm-hmm. of this film. And like, that's like kind of the obsession, like the cat, like the issues of capitalism, this film tries to grapple with, Yeah, which no. tries to is an operative word there. <laughs> and even during that song too, like she is flipping through what's basically like a, it was a home and garden. It was a good housekeeping. Yeah. Good housekeeping. Yeah. So like basically it's like everything that she's imagining as this like idealized version of life. Like her American dream has literally been curated for her by a popular magazine. Right. And it's it's definitely kind of feels because like the movie, again, is set in like the 60s. So we're leaving the, the 50s, the, you know, the stereotypical white straight family in in like the in the 50s that she's kind of like emulating that mm-hmm. well both of them really are are wanting while they're stuck in this like um urban um kind of squalor place that they're like almost hope wishing for a time where things were different it's kind of it's kind of weird well yeah and like i guess it's interesting because this film was made in 1986 but it's like placed in the 60s but 1986 was like a pretty intense political time oh yeah um, so hold on, was that Reagan? Was he in 1986? Um, I don't, I don't remember. I believe so. Yeah, it was, it was Reagan. right. Yeah. yeah, it was Reagan. I just wanted to make sure it was right before I said that because, like, the Reagan era politics were so like based in you know maintaining the status quo, hyper masculinity, and really wanting to like, you know, heterosexual patriarchal Republican cowboy perspectives on things, and this movie feels kind of like a reaction to that i think um i haven't seen the 1960 the, the 1960s version so i'm not sure like but regardless like i feel like the 1950s were like this idealized time and now it's like looking back then in the 1960s we were kind of pining for that with like the beginning of the vietnam war and all these other horrible things happening it's like oh we are like pining for a time before capitalism but even though that's not capitalism has always been a problem but it's like it's interesting how these films try to kind of grapple with that sort of like looking to the past as like for idealistic nostalgia maybe is like a way to put it i don't know yeah no um i i think i think you're onto something i was i was i was looking um i was doing a bunch of google searches because one of the things that i think this movie kind of does kind of fumbles is maybe i i I, i'm not really sure what it's trying to say about race (laughs) yes um and the use of race in it and i found this um article uh from kyle turner um that was written like two years ago and we'll we'll link it in the um in the show notes where they're taught he's talking about the skid row that um that the folks that inhabit inhabit seem to be though diverse very much minority inhabited um and that it kind of goes into this idea of gentrification because as Mushnik's shop starts to get more and more affluent with um relying on on Audrey too to bring in uh customers it gets more pastel and more bright but the rest of Skid Row remains dour and dark and it, it's almost like in some ways kind of t- almost it, for me like a satire of the idea of of white uh people profiting off of black people and then not doing anything to give back to the neighborhood do you know what Mm -hmm. what i mean yeah yeah and i i I read the same i actually read the same article as you terry and the one of the pieces that really spoke to me too is like after mr mushnick starts getting this like success 
we have one of those few scenes where where the the sort of like Greek chorus of like Chiffon, Crystal, and Ronette yep. actually like interact with him and he's like, You should be you should be bettering yourselves and they have that sort of like fourth wall break where they're they're basically saying oh, what is it that they say exactly? But they say something to the effect of like like he's trying to tell us to better ourselves, but So how do you tend to better yourselves? Better ourselves? You heard what he said? Better ourselves? Mr. When you from Skid Row ain't no such thing. Yeah, so it's like, sure, um, like you have Audrey and Mr. Mushnick and, and Seymour who are having this like rare success in Skid Row, as you mentioned, like profiting off of Audrey too, who is very distinctly a black voice. Mm-hmm. And and then talking to talking to these three young black women or who and be just being like well you just like fix things up but they're already at a systemic disadvantage even in skid row mm-hmm. right like i think the, the the point of this is is that um the the three white people are able to have this dream and have this idea of being able to to get out and pull themselves up from their bootstraps but for everyone else in there, it's not even that's that's not a privilege that they have. They're just trying to to get by. Yeah, and I mean, like something that also bothered me was having Audrey have a obviously very is be, being very distinctly played by a black man, and then having Audrey too, like trying to like bite women and being con- and consuming women and being predatory. Like obviously, he eats. Everybody, but the, he, he obviously is a very creepy. That like, comes on to Audrey. There's this scene in the radio station oh. where he's looking at a woman's butt and is like going to bite it. And you can, I mean, there. In one hand, you can look at it as he's just hungry, but on the other, it, it is like the subtext is there about this like portrayal of predatory black men in the in, in Audrey too. And I think that's something that isn't really grappled with or thought about, but like, I think, you know, that is there to discuss and see and kind of understand where this film stumbles quite a bit. Like, I, I, I think that there's like a couple different things going on here. Cause it, obviously I think the idea of what they were trying to go for with, with Audrey is this idea of like, the plant representing the failure of the American dream because Seymour is bleeding and bleeding. He grows anemic. He's like pricked every single finger he can. And he eventually has to chop up other people to feed this machine to keep it going so that he can try to like get out of this place that he is in. And eventually the machine turns on them and just, and if you've watched the, uh, the director's cut (laughs) destroys everyone. Like eventually this capitalism machine is just going to, roll over everyone and crush you but the problem is is that when you take that with as you said the well both of you said the 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 fact that this character is played by a black man and it's so it's kind of like it's a mixed metaphor and i'm like what are you what are you trying to say here because you're saying it one way but then on the other hand if you take it to its natural conclusion is this like a fear of black people taking over like you know what i mean like yeah. it, it's just it's yeah. kind of a, a mixed weird uncomfortable metaphor and i i don't think it was necessarily the their their point or their purpose but it's hard to look at this and not see that especially yeah. since audrey too is in like in i think most if not every iteration of little shop of horrors has been like consistently portrayed with the by a black actor mm-hmm. And in the in the new one that if um, they just were announcing casting and I believe Billy Porter is playing him. 
Yes. And that's really fucking cool. I'm, that's exciting. Yeah. Mm. I mean, <laughs> it is, but like, it's, I don't know. There's just, yeah. And there's a line in the movie where I immediately wrote, um, because like, <laughs> it's when, um, Seymour is getting his backbone and he says, you're not going to get, get away with this. Your kind never does. And I'm like, Oh, your kind never does. Like, okay, on the surface level, you're talking about aliens, but like, how would you say that your kind never does unless this isn't the first time that you've had an alien invasion? You know, like, I'm like grappling with what yeah. are you unless saying Unless he's like here? drawing from like, unless he's drawing from like the sci-fi that he's been exposed to right. beforehand. It's just Because like a lot of, a lot of like the original Little Shop of Horrors was meant to like, kind of like, not necessarily parody, but I'm going to use parody for like a lack of a better word, but parody like a lot of the like, uh, like sci-fi tropes that existed. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I can see it being born out of that, but like totally, it like it's it it leaves a taste <laughs> when 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 framed in this conversation for sure. So I'm like, hmm. Yeah, and and some of it is I don't. I mean, I don't. It's you know, it's it's the '80s, and obviously um, there was a lot of a lot of uh casual racism i mean you see that in this with even the 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 chinese shop owner who's mm-hmm. in like a full fu Shu or is that is that fu what Manchu, like yeah, fu, Manchu. fu Manchu with like he's it's 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 so uncomfortable well, and then the chorus of women like put on like have they have chopsticks on their hair and they put on like oriental dresses like mm-hmm. like you said or they say chang badum yep i'm like oh uh, like it does feel like very like casual 80s racism where people didn't really think about it but but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it now it's just like one of those things where it's like did they even think about it or understand like what they were saying they're just like this is a visual gag yeah exactly like yeah yeah but it's like like, fuck pc culture right and it's like like, i don't even think pc culture is even like a thing people thought about in the 80s but still very gross to watch it now and be like, oh, guys, come on. Like, were you really that naive? <laughs> Super uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, have, so have you guys seen the director's cut ending? Yes. Yes. Not recently, but yes. It was the version I watched. It was so funny. I was... I thought... I thought it was going to be the version I was going to watch, and then it wasn't. I watched the theatrical version, and I didn't have an option to watch the director's cut. And so I was just like, wait a minute. What is happening? Yeah. So it was one of those cases where, like, they filmed this ending, and it was, like, it's a 23-minute ending that's completely yes, different from the movie. so different. And I want to say I read in an interview that they sp- they spent somewhere between $1 and $5 million on this on this ending, and then they screened it. And it got such a terrible response from audiences that they refilmed it. And it's such a shame because that ending really sells the theme of this of this movie is that it's not it's not a happy movie. It's it's a tragedy. It's a Greek tragedy. It's why you have the um, the chorus girls, the three uh, women playing kind of the Greek chorus of it. It is framing this as a tragedy of the American dream failing these these this people yeah and i think that the last image in the because what happens is in in the for those who haven't seen it um and we'll link to a, a youtube video of it audrey kills um uh 
both Seymour and or Audrey too kills Seymour and Audrey eats them both and then goes on to a world rampage of destroying everyone and the last shot of it is is Audrey too on the top of the Statue of Liberty laughing maniacally <laughs> As he has pretty much destroyed the world, and then he bursts through the, the screen and eats everyone in the, in the movie theater. Hell yeah! But it's such a potent image when you when you take the, to the idea of of like this capitalism machine that must be fed, and then will turn on you and kill you in an instant. <laughs> well, and sort of similar. We talked, and this is something that actually got stuck in my head, like a weird motherhood metaphor too. That I I, I have I'm not really parsed out is like. Hear me out here. When Seymour is singing about like having to feed, seem like having to feed Audrey too, and finally realizes he has to bleed to feed him. It's like he's nursing him from mm-hmm. his body, which is reminiscent of breastfeeding. Like I'm gonna yeah. say it, it's like breastfeeding, and it's like this very weird maternal like relationship that he has with Audrey too. And then Audrey, too, all of a sudden can spawn their own little babies. And, like, yeah. I don't know. There's, like, a very interesting thing. I haven't really parsed it out too much in my head, but there's like, it's very interesting the way this film, again, I don't think understands the metaphors it's working with. Like, maybe we're giving this movie too much credit. <laughs> like, too much credit. <laughs> I, was like, I was, like, I was definitely, like, running with you, Mary Beth. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, and then he weans him off onto solids. Like, like, I just, I feel like perhaps this movie doesn't need to be as analyzed as we, as I normally do. But, like, I can't help it. Like, just, there's so many th- images in this movie that, like, are ripe for the picking. But if I think about him too hard, I'm like... Was this just Frank Oz being weird? Like, probably. <laughs> but I don't know, especially in like this day and age, it's hard not to at least like see that and want to acknowledge it. Like, he's fucking nursing the bait. I mean, and again, like, pouring your like literal blood into capitalism is the one metaphor. But then there's also this like weird motherhood nurturing metaphor. I don't know. I had to bring it up because it's been stuck in my head for like 12 hours. Jumping back for a second to the, uh, to the, the choice to change the ending. Uh, like I said, I, wa- I watched this on like an old copy on DVD. And so I got like amazing, not so amazing DVD extras that I had to like scroll through manually. And read. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I read about the choice was that, yeah, that when they screened it and it was like panned by all their test audiences, uh, part of the discussion piece around that and why it wasn't successful, which compared to like the stage version is that with the stage version, you get to see the cast come back out again to do their final bow. So you can see, you can see that everyone's okay. And you get that sort of like, I don't know, like aftercare for the audience. We'll just say. (laughs) And so like, because you can't do that with the, with the, with the show, they just, they felt it was just like too bleak for a comedy musical. And that's, and that's why they, they just didn't translate at all. But it's just weird for me to think of it that way, that it was in part, just a a piece of like something that works live that just really doesn't work on screen. I find it still works on screen. I, I I really like the director's cut ending because it's the one that, that I've kind of like internalized and that I remember more. Um, 
It's also but, so uh, well done. Like the, yeah. the puppetry in this movie is just it's fucking amazing. fantastic. It's amazing. And it makes me worried for this remake because I'm afraid they're going to do like just CGI crap with it. And I'm like, this, this creature, this puppet has so much life to it. Yeah, they, they ended up, I read something that they had, um, like commissioned like the structure, the scaffolding for, um, uh, for Audrey too, like the large puppet from, uh, some sort of engineering firm in, in, in the UK. And again, this was in the DVD thing. So it's like, oh, these people were super happy to take a break from their regular work of engineering things yeah. to build a giant puppet for us. But they had to build this giant, like, steel infrastructure to, like, support a 12-foot puppet that had to fill a room. Like, like practical effects. I love it. Digital would never. <laughs> right. Well, and, and I on, on the Wikipedia, when I was digging in, because I was, I was so curious about how they did this plant thing, um, during uh, Ajitu's final stage of growth, around 60 puppeteers were necessary to operate the one ton puppet Jesus. one ton and in order to like get it to look right they they actually filmed um they filmed it at half speed um so they slowed it to like 12 or 16 frames per second and then um use like and then sped it up when and re reinserted the 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 voices so that's how they got the like lips the lips to move right because it just it moves perfectly like you think that it's a real thing and it's so technical it's amazing. It's a, so cool. Amazing. I love puppetry so much. It's the coolest thing ever. Like it's so fucking fascinating. And you talked about um kind of like aftercare for the audience. Um <laughs> speaking of that kind of theme, Bill Murray pain pig. <laughs> what what is going on here? <laughs> I just think that they let him in a room and just like let him decide what to do. The way he, <laughs> he decided like, to lean into that so orgasmic far. over like the pain happening and oh god don't stop that. don't stop come on more yeah yeah come on yeah and Steve Martin's like frustration that he's not like getting himself is not getting satisfaction out of giving pain is such a weird moment in this show. Yes, it's bizarre. I love it though. <laughs> well, it's uh, great because it's one of the few moments where we get to see um, Orin the dentist like without power, right? Right. And it's probably that first moment that we get to see him without power because he seems like immune to everything leading up to that point. Like he's just like hopping off that motorcycle and getting it to stop perfectly and just grooving around the sidewalk. And that's fine. Although apparently like um, Steve Martin like punched through a door during oh, shit. a scene and like cut his hands open. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So even he probably thought he was a little invincible when he was portraying this. And I love Ellen Green as Audrey. Her I voice. was just going to mention her. Yeah. Like her voice is so good. Uh, I love how wispy her voice is until she's singing "Suddenly Seymour," and suddenly she's got this like I don't know any musical term, so I'm I'm just going to say it's a mad belt, even though it might not even be belting. But like like she just suddenly has this like huge power under her voice that wasn't there for the entire rest mm -hmm. of the musical. And it's just like, it's so beautiful. And she's just so funny. Like, she's like, yeah, yeah. It, it's funny because, like, 
she reminds me of Hairspray, I think. Like, Oh, yeah. She reminds me of characters in Hairspray. And actually, Steve, my partner, walked in while I was watching it. He's like, is Little Shop of Horrors a John Waters joint? Which, <laughs> which, which is, I think, hilarious. Because like, I can kind of see that, especially with her character. I just feel like a lot of John Waters' characters look like Baltimore Huns. Which... I'm I'm from the area, so like it's very specific. Where they have like very big hair and like yeah. very specific dress, like ways of dressing. And her voice did kind of get on my nerves a little bit at certain points. Oh, I loved it. I know. I, I so I like, wanted to like it, but uh, I don't know why. It just felt like nails on a chalkboard <laughs> for me. But then, like you said, Nina, she starts belting. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> there she yeah. is. But I also was impressed that she was able to sing in that voice. Like, her real voice doesn't actually sound like that. No, it doesn't. No. Um, and it's just the way that she can sing. Like, that's talent to be able to sing. I think it's talent. Until like, I control, like, control that, that voice. Yeah. I, again, I know, like, next to nothing about music, like, musicals and, like, voice training. But to me, it seems so impressive for her to be able to have that, like, very, like, wispy voice while she's singing when it's not actually her voice. So that was very cool. And, like, again, then it shocked me when she started belting suddenly Seymour. I was like, oh, she's here. She's arrived. <laughs> she's arrived. She's arrived. I love it. Yeah. We covered a lot of things. We did. <laughs> we went a lot of places. <laughs> well, this movie goes a lot of places. It's true. It, <laughs> it sure really does. does. I think it's funny watching it again that I'm still just as uncomfortable with Audrey 2 now as I was when I was a kid. Like, that, I haven't grown out of it. <laughs> I'm still just as uncomfortable with it. Having a hard time just handling... Like, I'm like, I hate that this musical is such, like, a banger. Like, it's such a bop, but... I don't know the delineation between Bob and Banger. It's both. <laughs> I'm not cool enough to know the difference, but it, but it's also like nightmare fuel for me. So <laughs> I, I, I think that's I kind of cool, though. I think yeah. that it like shows the the power of, of genre and like how it can like just stick in your head after all these years and still give you that like thing, that feeling. I think it's great. But um, but yeah, so. Thank you so much, um, Nina, for joining us to talk about Little Shop, Little, Little Shop, Shop of Horrors, Horrors Bops You Up. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you? And do you have anything coming up you'd like to share? Sure. Uh, well, you can find me on most social social media. My handle is... Uh, which is hard to spell and hard for most people to say. Hard so for me just... to say a couple episodes ago. <laughs> it sounds so pretty coming Everyone... out of your mouth. <laughs> it does. It's it's funny because it's, it's um, well, it's French, but it's also like a translated part of a quote from an Orphan Black episode. Hell yeah. So it's like, it's, it's, it's pulled, it's pulled from like, it's my biology, it's my decision. So it has like the biology, it has the feminism, it has like my Francophone background, it has the Orphan Black, it's the whole package, no one can say it. Um, That's so on brand. It's, it's super on brand, uh, but just search for Nina Nesseth. And I, as far as I know, I'm the only one. Um, uh, you can find me often on uh, Nightmare on Film Street and, uh, if you are super into Orphan Black, you can pick up The Science of Orphan Black. I do have another project uh, in the pipeline, but I can't talk too much Ooh. about it. But I, it is another um, like popular science meets uh, like pop culture 
uh, book. I'm really excited for it, and it is uh, tied into horror. Cool. Uh, oh my gosh, awesome. I'm so excited. That is yeah, exciting. Yeah, I'm su- it's super fun to write, so I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully looking forward to like talking about it a bit more in the future. Sweet. Yeah. Um, so listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What's your experience with Little Shop of Horrors, any version, really, um, send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, and we might feature you in an upcoming episode. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at M.B. McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, make sure to follow us at Scarred Podcast on Twitter. Tag us if you want to talk to us about anything. And uh, please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our amazing intro music. And thank you to everyone for listening. Stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.